uh, our Heidelberg Catechism seeks to summarize for us the teaching of all of Scripture concerning uh, the various things that we confess. Lord's Day 42 looks at what we confess concerning God's eighth commandment from the, from the law. You shall not steal. Before we read the two questions and answers of Lord's Day 42, though, I'd like to read with you two brief passages. First, a couple of selections from Leviticus 25, and then we'll look at two verses from Hebrews 13. Now, Leviticus 25, we're going to read verses 23 through 28, and then we're going to skip down to a couple of verses in the 30s. Beginning in verse 23, the Lord says through Moses, The land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the land of your possession you shall grant redemption of the land. If one of your brethren becomes poor and has sold some of his possession, and if his redeeming relative comes to redeem it, then he may redeem it, redeem what his brother sold. Or, if a man has no one to redeem it, but he himself becomes able to redeem it, then let him count the years since its sale and restore the remainder to the man to whom he sold it, that he may return to his possession. But if he is not able to have it restored to himself, then what was sold shall retain, remain in the hand of him who bought it until the year of Jubilee. And in the year of Jubilee it shall be released, and it shall return to his possession. And then skipping down to verses 35 through 38, he says, If one of your brethren becomes poor and falls into poverty among you, then you shall help him like a stranger or a sojourner, that he may live with you. Take no usury or interest from him. But fear your God that your brother may live with you. You shall not lend him your money for usury, nor lend him your food at profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. Looking then at Hebrews chapter 13. Now Hebrews chapter 13 is an interesting chapter. It's kind of a catch-all at the end of this beautifully organized sermon that is the book of Hebrews that talks about how Jesus was the fulfillment and the uh, replacement of all the ceremonial laws and commands of the Old Testament. Where chapter 13 kind of offers some concluding observations about how now we should live. And verses 5 and 6 say this, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. And in summarizing God's word from this passage and many others, Lord's Day 42 asks us, what does God forbid in his eighth commandment? Well, he forbids not only outright theft and robbery punishable by law, but in God's sight, theft also includes cheating and swindling our neighbor by schemes made to appear legitimate, such as inaccurate measurements of weight, size, or volume, fraudulent merchandising, counterfeit money, excessive interest, or any other means forbidden by God. In addition, he forbids all greed and pointless squandering of his gifts. What does God require of you in this commandment? That I do whatever I can for my neighbor's good. That I treat him as I would like others to treat me. And that I work faithfully so that I may share with those in need. 
Amen. Beloved disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Eighth Commandment really is a remarkably simple command in form. Just four words in our Bibles. You shall not steal. In the Hebrew, it's just two words. God's Word doesn't get more pointedly direct than that. And the surface of the command we know quite well, don't we? You shall not steal. Each of our children understands that it's wrong to take what isn't yours. If that toy belongs to someone else, it's wrong for you to take it without permission. It doesn't matter how nice the toy is. It doesn't matter how fun it seems. If it belongs to someone else, we may not take it without permission. Now, perhaps we occasionally forget that when it comes to someone else's toy. But when it comes to mine, I know that commandment quite well. If someone takes what is mine, I have no doubt that it's wrong. And I'll be quick to declare that act to be unjust, to say that it was a sin. So the concept of the Eighth Commandment is simple. We understand it. We get it. And yet we're remarkably good at justifying what we know is wrong. Look at our precious toddlers. We don't teach them that it's okay to steal, to take what is not yours if it looks really pretty or really fun. And yet how seldom does a toddler hesitate to snatch a bright new toy from the hand of his playmate? We never taught them it's okay to steal But it doesn't seem to occur to them that they shouldn't steal. As easy as the Eighth Commandment is for us to understand, to comprehend, from our earliest days it presents a challenge for us to obey. Perhaps that's because we're not always very clear about why stealing is wrong. Why can't I take that toy from his hand? Why shouldn't I take my turn with that doll, that truck, that game? What's wrong with taking office supplies home for my own use or fudging my taxes a bit or adding an hour here or there on my time card? What's so wrong with stealing a little bit if no one gets hurt or if no one notices or if no one seems to care? However, if we're going to use this commandment the way God intended us to use it, then we need to understand both how widely this command spreads across our lives and what we're saying, what we're confessing, both when we keep it And when we reject it, that's why we have Lord's Day 42, to kind of plumb the depths of this simple command. And when we do, we're taught that God's grateful people rely on their Father to perfectly provide. That's our theme. God's grateful people rely on their Father to perfectly provide. And the first aspect of that is rejecting the pursuit of dishonest gain. But to see that, we need to define a few things. I want to explore a little bit of the vocabulary that question and answer 110 introduces to us. It talks about theft and robbery and cheating and swindling and greed and squandering. We need to understand what that means if we're to understand the extent of this command. And at root is the sin itself. What is stealing? The simplest way to say it is that stealing is knowingly taking something that isn't yours. Knowingly taking something that isn't yours. So in other words, it's not stealing if you don't know you're taking it. If your friend leaves their coat in your car and you drive off with it, you don't, you're not stealing. You don't know the coat's there. Or if you don't think it belongs to somebody. If you go down the ditches and you're, you're picking up litter and somebody hid something in that ditch... If you didn't know it was theirs, you didn't know it was claimed by someone, it's not stealing. 
So stealing is intentional. You know you're doing it. You mean to do it. And it involves taking what belongs to someone else. They have a legitimate claim on it. When we think of stealing, we most often think of theft. We might call that simple stealing. It's what a person does when he takes something from someone else without their knowing it. It comes in countless forms. Shoplifting from a store, stealing money from mom's purse, hacking into a bank's file to transfer money to an offshore account. It can be little, it can be huge. But it's taking something from someone else without their knowledge. Robbery takes it up a step. They know you're taking it because you're taking it by force. Again, it comes in countless varieties, countless degrees, from kidnapping and holding someone ransom to robbing someone at gunpoint or knife point to to stealing someone's knowledge by threatening them if they don't do your homework for them. All of it is robbery because it involves stealing something openly by force or by threat. Now, here's the thing. Most of us aren't even tempted by the common forms of theft and robbery. Because our basic needs have been met, we're not desperate, and we know that it's wrong, and frankly, we aren't willing to endure the shame that would come with getting caught as a thief or a robber. But that doesn't mean that we're not tempted to steal in less obvious ways. One of your brothers or sisters isn't home, children. And so you go and you take that game that they just got, that you've been longing to play. Or one of your friends teaches you a trick for cheating on PayPal so that you can get stuff for free. Or you lose a textbook at school and then you see one unattended that's exactly the same. And so you take it. Our hearts are skilled with coming up with excuses to allow us to do that, to to soothe our consciences. With that game, we think, well... Well, surely my brother would allow me if he was here, even though you know in your heart he probably wouldn't. Or you think, well, PayPal makes so much money off of people. You know, what's a few dollars? Or, or maybe you say, well, you know, that textbook, they both belong to the school, so really who's, a, who's harmed? But it's still stealing, no matter what we tell ourselves to ease our conscience. And it's even easier to convince ourselves when the stealing happens in a gray area. Our catechism talks about cheating and swindling. Cheating is using a scheme or a plan to steal something without the owner's knowledge. When you cheat on a test, young people, you're stealing a grade, right? You're using an unfair advantage to steal a grade that you haven't earned. You adults are all familiar with the idea of cheating on taxes. You're using a scheme to get money or to keep money that isn't yours. But what about the sin involved in taking advantage on a board game or in a competition by acting as though you don't have the skill needed. Or saying that you baked the cookies you brought to the the fellowship meal and taking the praise for that even though you actually bought them at the bakery. Cheating can be so subtle that we convince ourselves that we've done nothing wrong, but we're still getting something that we haven't earned that isn't rightfully ours. Swindling our neighbor is similar. It's stealing through dishonesty. God condemns this in Deuteronomy 25 when he says we may have two kinds of weights or measures. That's how in the ancient world at the market they would maybe sell 14 ounces of flour as though it was 16. Or they would use a a shorter, a slightly shorter scale, a slightly shorter measure 
to measure out something that's sold by length. Now, of course, God says that He hates it, and we hate it too when we're the ones buying and getting cheated. But yet we're tempted to swindle others. When you're selling a car that has a significant problem, like the transmission slips, and you don't tell anybody about it. Or, or when you're paid by the hour, and the job takes a lot less time than you expected, so you, you say it took one extra hour. It's easier to justify such sins because in many cases, we can get away with it. The people that we swindle don't even know that we did it. And yet God sees and He hates that sin. But why? Why is it sinful? Why is it wicked in God's sight? The heart of this sin, you see, it involves love and idolatry. We ought to love. We were created to love God and our neighbor. But when we steal from our neighbor, we show that that we hate God who has commanded us not to steal and that we hate our neighbor whom we're taking advantage of. The only love we show when we engage in any of these kinds of, of stealing is self-love. Putting ourselves above God's honor. Putting ourselves, our love, our good over and above our neighbors. And folks, that's upside down. Stealing substitutes hatred for the love that we're called to show God and our neighbor. It concentrates all our love on ourselves, but the love God has shown to us is selfless love. Replacing that selfless love with selfishness shows that the love of God is foreign to us. And at the same time, stealing is a form of idolatry. Hebrews 13, we heard him say, let your conduct be without covetousness. That is, without the love of that which you've not been given. There's good reason for that warning. God wants us to beware of making an idol out of stuff, whether possessions or money or things. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, that we must urge the rich not to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. You see, God wants wants to be the one that we trust for all that we need. He wants to be the one that we credit for giving all that we've received. But when you steal, you show that we don't, we don't really trust that God's going to give us what we need. We think maybe He made a mistake. I should have had that and I haven't received it, so I'm going to take it by my own agency. That's idolatry. That's why Paul warns in 1 Timothy 6 that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith and their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. You see, money is a tool. It is not inherently good or bad. But the love of money is idolatry. Because we're saying that money will solve everything. That money is the thing we want above all else. Rather than God. Rather than trusting in Him. Rather than believing that even if we're poor, even if we're without, God will still meet our every need. And that's why stealing in any of its forms is a dangerous path to walk. It shows that our love is not for God. And that our trust is not in God. And so God urges us to flee from all forms of stealing. That's especially essential for us as Christians. God has promised to adopt us as His beloved children. But can we be His children truly if we love money or possessions more than we love God? 
Do we honor Him? Do we please Him when we put our trust in something other than God? And what's more, we're called to reflect the image of God the Son. When we confess to be Christians, people realize that's the claim that we're making. That God has saved us from our sin. That God is transforming us into the image of His Son. But what are we telling them when we claim to be Christians, but then we act dishonestly? Or we take them to the cleaners with a sale? Or when we work in some way as to get what isn't ours? Can that possibly glorify our Savior? Of course not. In fact, it does just the opposite. It shows them that our Savior can't be trusted. That He doesn't really change people. Or worse, that that's the kind of God He is. Moreover, He promised His Spirit to those who trust in Jesus. And through His Spirit to to make us to be holy. But when we steal, are we really trusting in the Spirit to give us what we need? Are we really acting like the living temples of God Himself? Beloved, the dishonesty, the idolatry, the self-love of stealing is incompatible with who we are and what God has promised us as Christians. And so our calling as Christians is to reject completely every form of it. We need to get into the habit of asking ourselves, am I acting faithfully with all that I have received? We need to do that in everything, whether great or small. It's much easier to excuse stealing in the small stuff. It's just a piece of candy. We'll notice. It's just a quarter. It's just a dollar. Nobody will miss it. And you know what? That might be correct. A small theft might not even be noticed. But again, God always notices and He cares even about the little tiny sins. In Luke 16, Jesus says, He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? We will be judged by our faithfulness in the tiny things. Because the character revealed is the same, whether it is much or little. Big or small, risky or not, we must reject the pursuit of dishonest gain, always. And you know, in in that calling, it's not only about the sins that we're to avoid. In teaching us to reject the sins of stealing, God's calling us to embrace a particular calling. That calling lies at the heart of the Eighth Commandment. It lies at the heart of what it means to be Christians. Because in calling us to reject stealing, God's calling us to be content with what He has provided. And so our second point is recognizing the blessing of sufficient provision. Recognizing the blessing of sufficient provision. My friends, we must never forget that God is the King of all that exists. In Leviticus 25, God gave some instructions, some commands for how they were to use the land that He gave them in Canaan. And in doing so, he reminded them up front. He had the right to give this instruction. Why? Because the land is mine. You are strangers and sojourners with me. In other words, it's not inherently yours. I entrusted it to you at this time for this reason. And you need to use it in recognition that I'm still the king over it. I still own it. And that's just as true for us as it was for them. All that exists, He's the one who made it. All that we receive, He's the one who sent it. There's not a single dollar in your wallet. Not a single shirt in your closet. Not a single slice of bread in your kitchen cabinet. That God has not specifically provided for you. And we need to remember that. 
so that we remember that He is sovereign over what we receive. We heard the counsel of Hebrews 13, that we are to be content with such things as you have. But you know, that counsel can't stand alone. Be content with such things as you have. We tell people of the world that and stop there. And they say, but I want what my neighbor has. Why should I be content with this? Why shouldn't I strive for more? But look at the next thing there. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You see, that's why we can be content with what we have. Because God is with us as our loving Father. Because God is providing for us every single thing we need every single day of our lives. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? We can refuse to fear the future because we know that God will faithfully provide in the future. His provision is perfect. He won't withhold from us that which we need. How do we know that? What did we hear in our assurance of pardon this morning in Romans 8? If God loved His people that much that He sent His Son to die for us, what now will He withhold from us? Will He withhold any of the smaller things? If He sent Jesus to redeem us from our sin, the very thought is laughable. So we need never doubt that God will provide perfectly for our needs. In fact, that's why He forbids greed. Greed is the sin of desiring, of setting our hearts upon what God has not provided. But greed, well, it reflects the conviction that God hasn't given me something I need or something I deserve. If we truly believe that God's provision is enough, we won't set our hearts on what He has withheld. We won't long for and pine after that which He's given to others. Because we know that when we do that, now I'm not saying you can't decide, you know, I think, This car is nickel and diamond me to death. I'm just going to sell it and buy a different one. That's fine. I'm not saying that you can't say, I think I want to see if I can find a different job. Or maybe we should move to a different house. What's greed is when you look at your house and you despise it because of how great your neighbor's house is. What's greed is when you become dissatisfied with the car you're driving because you long to drive that fancy, shiny new one in the neighbor's driveway. That's greed. And when you devote yourself and all that you do or a large portion of what you do to making sure that you can get that car or one better than it, that house or one better than it, that's greed. And when we embrace greed, we're implying that either God's love or His power is lacking. If God hasn't given me what I need, what I ought to have, then either He didn't love me enough to give me what I deserve or He lacks the power to do so. What a terrible confession that is to make about the sovereign God who loves us. Our God is the embodiment of love and power. He's the living definition of love. If we don't remember that on Easter, we'll never remember it, right? I mean, He sent His Son to die for us, and then He rose Him up from the dead, and He promised that we would be united to Him by faith so that we live today a resurrection life. We live A new life no longer enslaved to our sins. No longer held captive to that stuff that would have destroyed us. That's love. That's love of an abundance the sort that that people can't even show. And His power. I mean, there's nothing that exists from the smallest molecule to the greatest expanses of the universe that God didn't create and that God doesn't constantly uphold. He is great and He is loving. Therefore, 
we must be content with what he's given. And at the same time, we need to pray for the power and the conviction to use well what he's given us. All that we receive, think about this, everything you receive, God intentionally provided for you according to your needs, according to your personality, according to your circumstances in this time and this place. That's why 1 Peter tells us, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Listen to that again. As each one has received a gift. Everything we receive from God is a gift, isn't it? We don't earn it. Even our paychecks, we don't ultimately earn because He gave us the gifts and the opportunity to earn that paycheck. Everything we receive is a gift. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another. In other words, don't just greedily store it up for yourselves, but see how you can use it to serve your family, your friends, your church, your community. How can God allow me to use what He's entrusted to me for their good? As good stewards of the manifold grace of God. A steward is someone who employs, who uses what someone else owns. And that's us. Everything we possess is owned by God. That's why in uh, Leviticus 25, God emphasized the land is mine. You are sojourners on it. And so everything you possess, all of your, your home, your car, your tools... Also your gifts, your talents, your opportunities, also your family, your money, your reputation. All of that has been entrusted to God by you. And He wants you to use it in order to serve Him and to serve your neighbor and thereby to reflect the love and the faithfulness of God. Now that doesn't mean that you have to give everything away, you know, that you you can't save some. No, you save, but for what reason? You save some money in the bank in order to serve your family, in order to provide for your loved ones. Not just so you can be rich, not just so you can have a reputation, not just so you can have all the toys with the bells and whistles. No, you save so that you can serve. And likewise, when you spend, it's so you can serve. So you can use your gifts in a way that that honors God and blesses your neighbor. And let us go even farther, seeking ways to reflect His selfless love positively. Much of what we've talked about has been negative. We don't steal by theft or robbery, cheating or swindling. We, we aren't to dishonor God by being greedy or squandering His gifts. But there's also a positive side to this. And the positive side is our calling to reflect the generosity of our selfless God. And that's our final point. We're to reflect the generosity of our selfless God. Our catechism summarizes this positive aspect with three duties that belong to us as Christians with regard to our stewardship. First, the calling that I do whatever I can for my neighbor's good. In Leviticus 25, we heard God command His people to maintain their fellow Israelites when they were poor. They were to support their poor brothers, ensuring their needs were met. If their brothers needed food or money, they were to give it to them, not at a profit, but freely. That concept is repeated for the church in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, in that place, we find the church in Jerusalem has endured a famine. And so the churches in the Roman world took up offerings to help, benevolence offerings. In this way, Paul says, they were imitating Christ who became poor so that we could become rich. And the apostle urges them to give willingly, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
And he recalls God's promise that he will provide for them so that they can provide for others. Folks, these are examples for us. When we see needs that we're able to meet, that God has given us the ability to meet, whether it's a need for money or resources, a need for a helping hand, a need for encouragement or a listening ear or just time, whatever the need, we're called to give joyfully of that which God has given to us. Not growing weary in doing good, but rejoicing that God has given us that opportunity to serve others in His name. So we are to do whatever I can for my neighbor's good and that I treat him as I would like others to treat me. When we treat others lovingly, when we offer our faithful service to them. Well, Hebrews 13 says that's a sacrifice. Do not forget to do good and to share for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. That sacrifice of doing good and sharing with those around us, it encourages the faith of those whom we show, to whom we show love. Our loving kindness shows them the love, the faithfulness, the provision of God. And especially so when they ask, why are you doing this? Why would you loan me your car when mine's broken down? Why would you loan me that money without interest? Why would you come over and spend your day helping me with a project that won't benefit you at all and then refuse to take payment? Why? And we have the opportunity to tell them, God has given me that time. God has given me that money. God has entrusted to me an extra car. And He wants me to use it to show love to you. That's the kind of God we serve. And we gain the opportunity to show them in a concrete way. I mean, that is so much deeper a witness than simply leaving a tract under somebody's windshield wiper. Because we've demonstrated the faithful love of God. So we are to do whatever I can for my neighbor's good. We are to treat him as I would like others to treat me. And that I work faithfully so that I may share with those in need. That's a big part of the instruction we find here in Leviticus 25. In that second section we read. If an Israelite became poor... God didn't want His people, didn't permit His people to just ignore them. Oh, too often they did, but they weren't supposed to. There were two ways they could help them. First of all, if the man in his poverty sold his land. Remember, the land was a gift to them. And it was a gift to them in a way that was much more explicit than our property today. God entrusted particular portions of the land to each family. And so when you became poor enough that you had to sell your land, you were selling the birthright of your children, the inheritance of your grandchildren. And so God said, if that happens, you go redeem the land. You go buy it back for them. And when they get back on their feet and they have enough money, you sell it back to them, not at a great profit, not at an appreciated price that will pad your bank. No, no, no. You sell it back to them for the cost of the years that you owned it. In other words, just to recoup what you've lost. And then he says, if he he becomes poor and falls into poverty, you shall help him like a stranger or a sojourner, that he may live with you. Take no usury or interest from him, but fear your God that your brother may live with you. In other words, don't don't say, yeah, I'll help you out. It'll be a 25% interest loan. 
payable in a year, and if uh, you don't pay it in that time, then it'll go up 36%. No, no, no. You don't get rich off the back of your poor brothers. You care for them. You give them what they need. You don't expect repayment. If necessary, you open your home to them and welcome them in. Because when you do that, you're sending a message to them and to the world. As God's people, he's talking especially about the people of God, although we should extend it to our community as well. But we're sending a message. You're not on your own. You're not fending for yourself because God cares for you. And he does so not necessarily by sending money from heaven, but by sending people to whom he has given the resources to help. He's sending people who are able to meet you in your time of need. The thing is, that that helping of the poor, that's not something that just everyone can do. To buy back a person's property, that requires having the capital to be able to buy it back. To invite someone in your home, that throws your budget all out of whack. That, That takes up the space that's been allocated to your family. And you might not have that much room in your house. But God himself has given them everything. And so when they're able to help, they're to rejoice to do so. And that means, brothers and sisters, for us, that we should work hard enough that we're able to share. Children, we call that a Christian work ethic. Not just working hard enough to to just barely scrape by, but working hard enough, working faithfully enough with the gifts and the opportunities God entrusts to you, So that you're able to share with those in need. That's part of what it means to be a good steward of God's gifts. Young people, God did not create you to be freeloaders. He gave you strength and talent and wisdom. So don't strive to do the bare minimum to get by so that you can spend the rest of your time lazing around or doing just useless things. We're called to use our gifts of time and talent and strength and opportunity We're called to use those in service to God and in others. We're called to use those to to build up a bit of an excess so that we can share with those in need, whether an excess of money or an excess of talent or an excess of time. So serious is this calling that Paul in 2 Thessalonians 3 says, Even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. He reminds them of that instruction and emphasizes it. If the people in the church don't work, he says, don't regard them as an unbeliever, but also don't have fellowship with them. Shun them for their refusal to work. Now, of course, we know there are people who are disabled. They're not able to work. They have a different calling, a calling to prayer, a calling to encouragement, a calling to visiting. But for most people, we have the ability to work. We have the ability to earn a living for ourselves. And if we're unwilling to do that, then God calls His people to shame us so that we understand that we're we're neglecting the calling that God has laid upon us. Now we're not able to share with those who are in need. Now we're not able to help out those who've fallen on hard times. And therefore, now we're not able to reflect the love and the care of God. So rather than that, let us delight. Let us delight to be able to gather up enough that when our neighbors in need, we're able to give them help. When our kids 
fall on hard times, we're able to give them a hand up. Not enabling them, but giving them a temporary reprieve. That when our friend is in need of some help, we're able to offer that help quietly without anybody else knowing so that he can see in our help the love and the care of God. Folks, these these positive aspects of the Eighth Commandment, they're not just an obligation, they're a privilege. When we seek to do good to others, when we treat others generously, when we work hard so that we can share, we're reflecting the character of God who is tremendously generous. We're showing His selflessness to a watching world. We're displaying His love to a world that knows only self-love. And that is an immense privilege. So let us embrace that privilege. The privilege to use your gifts and talents in service to others. The, The privilege to encourage each other in sharing and in doing good. The privilege of teaching your children through your instruction and by your example to do likewise. And God will be seen through His beloved children. While we ourselves will gain confidence through the works of the Spirit that God will perfectly provide. The end of the matter is this. God's grateful people rely on their Father to perfectly provide. So let us rely on our Father who richly and generously provides. Let us ask God to bless our efforts at honoring Him with all that He gives. And beloved, be assured, He will answer our prayer unto His glory. And we will be blessed as we see more and more how perfectly and completely He does provide for our needs. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, You have provided for us so richly, so abundantly, that it overwhelms us at times. Grant that we might receive all that You've given with grateful hearts filled with faith, acknowledging that You have always given what we need and that You always will. And Lord, we ask that You would make us to be selfless, Showing forth not greed, not covetousness, but trust in you and gratitude as your stewards. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name, unto your glory. Amen. In response, let us sing together.